Well, hello everyone, and welcome to the latest of the Better World podcast series. I'm Ian Thompson, Managing Director at Bologna Advisors, and over the next hour, an expert panel and I will be going through all things net zero and sustainability, specifically a review of the recent Skidmore review on the UK's progress towards its net zero goals, and a real estate-focused assessment of progress in practice towards net zero. Now, luckily, a few lucky-lucky people with me are two extremely gifted well-qualified speakers. Uh, the first up, we have Colin Morrison, who's Senior Director and Head of Sustainability at Leading Planning Practice, Turley. Uh, he's got 25 years experience in sustainability in ESG fields and um, somewhat curiously has a degree in zoology. Good evening, Colin. Good evening, Ian. Yeah, thank you for that uh, introduction. Very flattering. <laughs> uh, absolute pleasure. It's probably better than the intro I'm going to give for Pete anyway. So um, second uh, of my speakers this evening, uh, Peter Henry, Director of Sustainability at uh, FTSE 500 company, Harworth Group PLC. He's performed that role since April 2022. Uh, he is a fully qualified civil engineer. He's worked at Howarth for over 10 years. He's brought forward some of uh, the UK's most challenging brownfield developments. Uh, and uh, interestingly enough, he is only he's the first person to ever be asked back to be a panellist following spectacular feedback in the autumn. Good evening, Peter. Good evening. Thank you for that uh, lovely yet critical introduction. Nice to speak to you again. Excellent. Thank you, Pete. Well, let's just go through what the Skidmore review actually entailed before uh, running through whether you both thought it was uh, a, a great piece of work and then what it actually means in practice. So the Skidmore review in brief then. Uh, it was a six-month exercise undertaken by the former university's minister, Chris Skidmore, uh, and an expert team around him. Uh, which looked at, uh, in effect, uh, basically how the UK could better meet its net zero commitments, uh, taking account of recent global changes, uh, including the war in Ukraine and President Biden's recent Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, it was a six-month exercise that engaged uh, over 18, uh, 1,800 individual submissions. And the former minister came up with a 340-page opus with nearly 200 individual recommendations. But critically, it came up with 10 leading missions where it thought that the UK could improve its progress. And those 10 missions were around gridded infrastructure, around accelerating progress on solar developments, accelerating progress on onshore wind, accelerating progress on nuclear, basically picking up a bit of a theme here, um, energy intensives and in industry, which is around decarbonisation built around long-term investment in carbon capture, uh, improvements in the circular economy and waste, what they term net zero local big bang, which is around unblocking the planning system and reforming the relationship between central and local government, improving energy for households, uh, nature recovery, and then investment in research and development. Now, some of you may already know that we've already, at Bologna Advisors, have critically appraised the review. What we concluded, where it was a laudable attempt at what is a huge topic, 340 pages, tells its own story. Uh, and in our view, it focuses mostly on the right elements. Uh, however, there are a couple of curious omissions within uh, the document, which we'll be going through in uh, detail, whilst it also is not sceptical enough, in our view, over what the role of carbon capture and storage really ought to be and whether it even works in the first place. What it does do, though, and uh, one thing that we've been emphasised within our conclusion, is that it does effectively hold a mirror up to government in their comparative inaction over the past couple of years 
And in particular, what we mean by that is a lack of a discernible strategy and a fairly disjointed, disassociative programme. Um, one of the interesting bits, of course, is since the Skidmore review was actually published, we believe the government has actually accounted for that in creating a new department, Energy Security and Net Zero, under Grant Shapps. So that suggests to us, at least in the short term anyway, that the government appears to be taking what the review states seriously. Um, but that is, that is the Skidmore review in a, in a nutshell. Um, and clearly, gents, you've both seen what uh, I believe of uh, Skidmore's opus, as I've described it. But what did you make of it? Colin, uh, let's start with you. Thanks, Ian. Um, well, um, the, uh, the cynic in me may say um, it's a bit late, um, but it is thorough. Look, it is thorough. It is, it is overdue. It is very, very welcome. Um, there is a lot in there that um, makes sense. And I think, uh, I, I'm sure over the next hour, um, you, you and I and, and Peter will be, will be uh, picking out lots of, of the good stuff. But, you know, there's also a lot in there that I think anybody who works in the, in the net zero industry can relate to uh, and can, can pick out as, well, you know, yes, absolutely, that, that's an issue that needs fixing. Yes, that's an issue that needs fixing. There's lots of them. Um, so, um, I mean, it, it is positive, but, 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 you know, and we'll go into it more detail, but, but for me, what is, what is now absolutely critical is, is action. This is these, these are words. They're good words. There's some good ideas in there, lots of good ideas, lots of plans, but they've got to translate into action. And really now that's where the government has to be held to scrutiny because I think the few things that I absolutely agree with in terms of the Skidmore review, and I think it's there on the exec summary, it's the growth opportunity of the 21st century. <laughs> well, absolutely it is. Um, and uh, it, it, it's, it's, it needs quick action. So that would be my, my first thoughts. Great, great document, bit overdue, but now we've got to get on and deliver some of those uh, some of those plans. Thanks, Colin. I mean, Peter, I mean, presumably you would agree with that assessment. Anything in particular from your side that uh, you you know your heart sang as a result, or it sank? Yeah, you should know me well enough that my heart very rarely sings. Um, look, like you guys, I think uh, it was a weighty tome. It took me a while to get through, but actually, credit to the author, it's a, a relatively easy document to read. And I think at its heart, it does seek to cover the key issues. Um, I like that it highlights the growth opportunities, but also recognises the uh, the weakness in the investment environment in the UK, and particularly in relation to offsets, which is a topic I'm sure we can cover. Um, I like the fact that it, it talks through infrastructure bottlenecks, and that's not just the infrastructure in the ground, but also the regulation and the changes to regulation that are needed. I think we're all in agreement that technology's moved to a point where net zero could be addressed on many levels, but certainly regulation plays its part in how that's going to happen. Um, it does bring out, in my view, um, a significant focus on the planning system. And indeed, in places, to me, it noticeably highlights that the planning system is undermining net zero, which I thought was an interesting approach and may indicate some changes to planning policy that are coming through. Um, and it also points to a good level of inconsistency in policy from government. And that's quite a strong um, recurring theme across the report. But I think 
for me, the report faces the same challenge that we perhaps all do in our businesses in that um, whilst there are some clear solutions to net zero, many aren't yet fully understood. Um, and I think in certain cases don't yet exist. And I think I'd probably particularly highlight that it's almost silent in relation to embodied carbon. So carbon that is emitted as part of construction processes. And whilst it's a really difficult nut to crack, um, I think it is one that probably demands a bit more attention in the document. So for us to say it was lacking in some areas, that would be one of them, certainly. Yeah, I mean, clearly embodied carbon is something that you're actively living with on a daily basis within uh, within Harvest Group. I would have to agree with that assessment. Um, planning is something that we're going to cover later. I'm, I'm intrigued by your comment, Pete, that you know, the current planning system in some way does undermine um, the British efforts to get there. Coming back to an area where, where clearly there is quite a lot of prescription within it and, and the emphasis on action. One is around the strategic framework and delivery plan for what the authors describe critical networks of the future to turbocharge onshore and offshore development. Um, we're basically reflecting uh, long-term worries about the resilience and future of the national grid in supporting decarbonisation. And in fact, it then talks about uh, antiquated even grid structures offering weights of up to a decade for grid connections, therefore acting as a direct threat to the energy transition. Uh, and it also talks about updating the mandate of Ofgem and creating the future system operator. So clearly, the, you know, the, the, the role of the grid and the future system operator appears to be absolutely central to the, 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 uh, the ethos of what's in the Skidmore review. I mean, Pete, you, you, this is an area that you're highly experienced in. I mean, what challenges are you currently seeing in practice with the grid and why? And how could things change in practice? Because I think we could all agree that this is a key area of, of challenge. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, I think where we are is that we've got a system that was designed um, as a one-size-fits-all, wasn't it? So everything was centralised and the power came out of those central areas into whatever was using it. And we all know that that is changing. I still think there'll be an element of that, but actually the, the whole grid needs to change to reflect the fact that there'll be a lot of decentralised energy. I think it's interesting that they highlight Ofgem um, as the body that may be able to drive this through and they talk about potentially giving Ofgem greater powers. Um, but I think having an overall strategic guide is absolutely fundamental. And I think the one area that we uh, as a developer, so large scale developer of new commercial buildings, uh, developments, new towns, new residential developments, um, the national grids can deal with the high level transmission problems. The DNOs can start to deal with the regional problems. And then there's the role of the IDNOs, so the people that look after the, the grid that aren't the DNOs. But I think where we see there's a bit of a missing link and the report starts to talk about it is that there is very little currently in relation to the provision of energy um, and the use of energy on a sort of medium scale. So if we were developing a new town that had 3000 new homes, there's very little in the current regulation, current commercial systems and the like that allow people to set up localised energy structures and then use those efficiently over a period of time. So I think for me, one of the big areas that needs to come out of this is addressing that missing link. It's almost like a new area of regulation that's needed to reflect the fact that you can produce energy now, you can store it, you can then redistribute it. But I think the regulatory and the commercial mechanisms aren't quite there yet. Now, it's an interesting observation, Pete. So are you thinking um, microgrids for new communities 
uh, which could potentially incorporate off-grid power as well as obviously generating uh, or being an importer to the grid. Yeah, and I think that has to be part of the solutions going forward. And I think um, if I was to look at our commercial and logistics um, developments, there may be 10, 15 occupiers within those buildings to deal with. Um, and you can start to do that on, on what people like to call private wire. But actually, once you start to look at that philosophy across, say, a new uh, town, so 3,000 new homes, schools, healthcare, all the good stuff that comes with it, that's where it becomes very complex. And I think that's the area that we could really benefit from a, a focus, not necessarily on the technology, because I think that's starting to work, but on the regulation all the way through to... Um, how customers interact from a housing perspective as well. I think that's a real area that we could benefit from as a country. Yeah, absolutely. And big challenge for Ofgen coming up in 2023. But Colin, I mean, obviously, you work all across the UK in uh, some of those challenging sustainability schemes in real estate at the moment. What have you been seeing in practice in relation to uh, the capacity and, uh, frankly, quality of the grid? Absolutely, yeah. So, um, well, first of all, absolutely echo uh, Pete's uh, comments there around um, smart grids, smart systems. I mean, yes, I mean, we, we my team and I, um, and Turley as a whole, yes, we, 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 we help to design large new settlements, large employment parks, uh, employment facilities, mixed use, et cetera, et cetera. And I think, you know, there's, there are absolutely a few consistent themes coming across. So just take just take new, new settlements, for example. I mean, we're involved in a few right now, you know, 5,000 homes plus. I mean, just think, you know, the path for those new settlements is actually pretty pretty clear in that, you know, by the time these things get up and built, future home standard, we're going to be all electric. We're deliberately designing our gas, which is great. That's supposed to be. We're going to move to heat pumps, so it's going to be an all-electric development. And take it, you know, take a, a typical house if there is such a thing in twenty twenty-six, twenty-seven, beyond. It will be electric powered. It will have an EV probably sat on the drive if you can get one, but uh, hopefully supply will increase. But you know, it'll have an EV, and so you've effectively got every single house having its own large battery sat on its on its drive. And so really what we should be doing is there should be this drive from off-gem district network operators right down to IDNOs to start thinking creatively and saying, look, gone is the previous model of, okay, you need X megawatts, so therefore we'll provide that power to your building. What we should be doing is saying, right, okay, let's use that smartly. Let's, let's, let's figure about, you know, we, don't, we need to provide half the energy we had to use and we'll just use the other half smartly um across the site i think that's where we need to to be to, to be going to um and i think in terms of what the other things that we're seeing is 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 sadly as well a, a, a slightly risk or a very risk averse approach from some of these these dnos although there are signs that that is changing um and i think definitely you know it would be great to have some some renewed uh, some new legislation and a, and a big focus on 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 driving forward a willingness to create these smart grids i think a couple of other things i'll, I'll add to this tells we're also seeing it's amazing how many developments we are also seeing that cannot export power um again particularly i would say on on large logistics um employment parks where there's just not sufficient capacity in the grid to export the power they can't get an export connection and we have a number of clients, and to be fair, it tends to be most of them, if not all of them, who say, look, we'd like to cover the roof in PV. We would like to do more stuff on renewables, but 
the export connection or lack of ability to export has hindered it. And that's a real shame. Um, and uh, again, I think, you know, why, to be fair again, Net Zero Review has identified this. We need big investment in creating this smart grid that, you know, operates nationally, but can also operate locally. Um, and to me, that's a, if I had a, if I had a spare few billion to invest, I'd be looking to invest in that system. That's an interesting point, that Colin. I mean, have you seen any regional variation in the exportation of power problem? Not so much regional. Well, uh, in for us, no, in that um, it happens on projects, to be honest, regardless. It's not necessarily a, a north versus south or east versus west. It's almost just depends the particular location and the infrastructure that's there. But I mean, there was the um, quite uh, significant issue recently, wasn't there, identified by um, London, I think. Uh, yeah, about, yeah. yeah, that's right. I mean, that was the situation where I believe they said there was no more spare capacity in the grid um, to facilitate new development. I mean, clearly, again, if ever there's another sign that we need to invest in this smart grid system, well, well there it is. I think it's I think it's interesting for me guys because actually I think a chunk of that comes back to how the DNOs were set up during privatization and actually they weren't set up to react to requests like this were they they were there yeah. as the yeah. buyer of energy and I think um whilst there may be willingness within the DNOs to change I think some of their sort of structure stops that happening and I think Ian if I could add one thing to what Colin was saying and this comes from um, many years of experience of delivering large-scale developments over a number of years, so lots of phases. I think one of the biggest challenges that we all face is the commerciality of these private um, grid, smart grid systems. So if you're starting from scratch with a new town, it might take 5, 10, 15 years to deliver. But what you need from a commerciality perspective with your energy infrastructure is certainty of return. And so actually the, the reviews that need to go on need to understand how that certainty of return can be put in place over a long period of time. And I'd be fascinated to see how that might develop. No, absolutely right. Uh, coming back to the West London example that, that Colin just mentioned, a lot of that and, and the lack of available power was actually driven by some fairly intensive uh, recent new developments around things like data centres, uh, mm. which clearly weren't here 10, even 10, 15 years ago. And those involved with data center development, people like ABB, have actually been advocating or trying to come up with off-grid applications, as well as obviously working with the grid and, and trying to minimize the amount of power that the data center requires anyway. So I don't think that, that issue is at all going to go away uh, over the next five to ten years. So definitely want to, uh, to keep an eye on. One of the things that, uh, again, if you, if you listen to this and you've got your decarbonization bingo card out, Colin did uh, raise one of the key issues. And that's heat pumps, one of the key uh, hot topic products uh, over the past six to 12 months. Uh, people like Vela and others manufacturing them, of course. Um, but bizarrely, uh, even the Skidmore review doesn't properly emphasise the need for a national retrofit programme, which likes the UK Green Building Council have called for over the past 12 months. Uh, why is it that what we think is an obvious course of action is routinely being ignored? And what should developers and asset owners do in the meantime? Fairly complex question. I'm going to throw it to you, Colin, in the first instance. Absolutely. And no doubt I'll give you all the answers in five minutes. Uh, <laughs> um, no, it is it is very complex. Well, look, yeah, I mean, again, for, for those in the industry or with a, 
even, I guess, a basic knowledge perhaps of net zero, realize that yes, whilst it's, it's, it's obviously important to get the new build stuff right, the retrofit and the existing stuff, we won't hit net zero unless we, unless we, we tackle that. And it is a massive challenge and I, and I get it. And it's, it's, it's quite complex, but I, why, why didn't, why didn't the, re, the review mention it? Well, I don't know. Could it be that perhaps they were a little, um, uh, concerned, maybe fingers burned. Do you remember the green deal program? Yeah, uh, Cameron government coalition 2013, 14, 15, if my memory serves, you know, that was a very ambitious policy that was launched to push retrofits, lean, uh, loans linked to uh, houses, etc., to pay for um, retrofits, uh, insulation technology. I think they had an ambition of 4 million homes and then there was 15,000 or so and it, it was canned after about two years. Um, and I, and I remember actually at the, at the time when that was, that was, that was coming out, having a few discussions with, with people and it almost felt like, you know, great idea, but maybe five years too early because the finances weren't essentially there. I mean, there was a number of reasons for it, but I, but I, but I think that, um, you know, there is absolutely the need for retrofit. I think that's has to be tackled. The, the most challenging one is probably around domestic because you've got the links between homeowners, where you borrow the money, how it's paid back. But, you know, I think those are those are issues that, that could well be resolved now as we have a much greater gap, I think, in terms of a much quicker payback, I think, uh, now with energy prices the way they are. Um, so domestic one is definitely a challenge. Um, but, uh, you know, we've seen green mortgages uh, now starting to increase. Um, I think that's a, that's a, that's a great opportunity for, for the financial sector to offer um, funds for um, for investment in in in, uh, in greener buildings, and finally, if you develop as asset managers, well, I think if you if you own an asset now, certainly what we are seeing in the markets, we we do provide advice to, to clients who have assets. I think there's again the financial system that the the institutional investors are really starting to consider the risk of having stranded assets. So we see more and more clients now thinking are asking us to do audits of their site to figure out which of the uh, uh, have the greatest risk with respect to retrofit, which can't be retrofitted, which can be retrofitted. Um, and you know, there's some positive, positive movements in the market. But um, yeah, it's, it's still a, a, a big challenge, but a really big opportunity that we've just got to tackle. Yeah, hugely. I mean, in theory, then, uh, Colin, it could be a case that you, know, you mentioned about commercial buildings, EPC E-rated uh, commercial buildings, in theory, shouldn't be allowed um, post uh, April 2023. Mm. I'm just intrigued as to whether this this idea of a stranded asset class will actually materialise. That there'll be a surface of properties suddenly empty, uh, not being used across the UK. Uh, I, I'm not sure whether that's going to actually materialise or not. I'm, I'm intrigued as to what the regulators are going to do on that. Well, in, 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 indeed, yes. And I think, well, I mean, there's a lot of change uh, still still to come, isn't it? I mean, you've got things like as well, the CREM tool uh, that uh, we're now starting to see uh, coming out uh, for um, asset managers to evaluate to assess their portfolio against stranded assets. Yes, I mean, it's, it's, I have heard that term used. We use it and many others use it as, as, as well. Um, will it materialise? I don't know. But it's 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 nonetheless 
uh, I think there is a move in the markets to recognise that the best performing buildings and the ones that are will have a better value and will be more easily traded are ones that uh, are high performing or can be made high performing. Absolutely right. I mean, P- Peter, you, you uh, live and breathe this issue for both um, uh, residential development and commercial development. I mean, not only could you provide, obviously, not only your view, but also I'm conscious that Haworth are trying to be ahead of the curve here in the way that they're tackling this before any kind of government mandate kicks in. No, I think it's fair. I think the um, the commercial building side of it, I wonder out loud if the report is silent on it because of the proposals in terms of EPC and MIS over the next sort of six, seven years. There's not only the EPC next year, but it's a proposal in 2027 for that to move to band C, which is quite a big step change. So actually, if that's followed through, then landlords and tenants will be forced to talk to each other and forced to work out how to reduce emissions from their buildings. So I'm relatively optimistic of that. And as a landlord of a significant commercial portfolio, we are looking very closely at um, where our buildings sit uh, along those EPC ratings. We're talking to our tenants and to our occupiers, and we're starting to understand in some detail how each of them is moving along their, their carbon pathway as well. And I think what that is doing is it's forcing wider discussions between landlords and tenants that perhaps weren't happening a few years ago in terms of the function of the building. So from a commercial asset point of view, I think there's some key drivers there that um, most commercial developers will have to, to, to run through. I think the residential one's a bit more difficult, isn't it? It's a bit more personal. Um, I'm sat here in a, a relatively old sort of stone built house, gradually improving it, but it is a gradual improvement um, and it can't be solved at once. So I think there's a large uncertainty around the residential side. I think it's almost at the moment, it's too difficult to understand what the solutions are for a range of properties. So your average 1960s property is going to be completely different to an 1870s property or a 1990s property. And so I do think that the government has a bit of a a challenge in terms of how you go about that problem and also how you encourage people to go about that problem. Now, clearly the energy price issues that have happened over the last six months or so have probably allowed people to think about it in a different way. But I do have some sympathy on the retrofit point that it's a, a really difficult challenge that we're all going to go through as businesses, but also on a personal level as well, aren't we? No, absolutely right. But could you imagine, Pete, a old wine in new bottle scenario where, in effect, there could be interest-free loans for a limited amount of time backed by government to try and accelerate this over the next couple of years? Uh, I, I probably don't have to imagine it in that there were various things around insulation and solar panels not so long ago that were withdrawn. So I do think that those types of measures will have to be brought back in in one form or another to encourage the transition. Yeah, that's one for uh, Mr. Shapps anyway, who uh, clearly is just, uh, you know, he's at the Department for Transport not so long ago. So he clearly likes a challenge, uh, does Mr. <laughs> Shapps. Uh, but OK, now, th- thanks both for that. I mean, the uh, another key real estate issue that you both referenced so far uh, is uh, one of our favourite topics, the planning system. And clearly you've got the government at the moment actively reviewing what happens with the national um, planning policy framework. Um, what the review does do, it references the use of the planning system as a key method to implement its recommendations at local level. I mean, can you actually see um, DLUC in its current form uh, enacting any of this um, within its current review? Pete, you, you, you've thought about this long and hard. 
including including over a weekend, of course. Um, <laughs> what do you think? Can, can you can you see the government actively making progress on this and trying to remove this uh, theory that somehow the planning system planning system is an impediment towards net zero achievement? I think there's a couple of things on that. I'm going to dust off my optimism hat, which as you well know doesn't get taken off that that often. I think earlier in the discussion, you pointed to the creation of a, a net zero office in government effectively after the publish, publication of, of this particular report. And I do wonder if there are other things that will start to appear out of this report. And as you guys well know, there's the MPPF review going on at the moment. Whilst it doesn't specifically mention a range of these things, I think what's potentially going to happen is that the some of the recommendations in, in this review are going to come in alongside the MPPF because I do think at the moment, and I appreciate your guys' views, that there's been an awful lot of declarations of climate emergencies through councils, but I think at the moment there's a real lack of clarity as to what that actually means and how things are going to be driven. And I think what we've seen over the last six months is a few, and I use that term advisedly, a few authorities starting to consult on changes to um, their policies. Um, and in particular, we're looking at the likes of Manchester and Leeds. Uh, Barnsley was another one that starts to come through. And they're all starting to recognise the need for action behind their declaration of climate emergencies. But there's a real range of um, topics that are included and measures that are put in place. And I think in particular, something that's of interest to us going forward is how each of these local authorities is going to approach First, the assessment of carbon emissions and how you do that, particularly on large scale schemes, but then how it approaches that through, for instance, a Section 106 imposition on carbon emissions. And I think that's going to be a really interesting approach. But I do see that government will have to incorporate at least some of the outcomes of this report within that um, MPPF discussion. No, absolutely right. It's interesting that you mention a number of uh, northern cities and towns that are actively leading the conversation on, on net zero, particularly Leeds, who I think have got the most challenging net zero target of all local plan authorities across the UK, Pete, if I remember correctly. Is it net zero 2030? I think it is from memory, yes. So, yeah, extraordinarily uh, challenging times there for Leeds. I love the ambition, though. Obviously, they've got the climate innovation district within there. Uh, Colin, this is this is home territory for Turley, uh, given obviously the work that you do uh, across the UK. What 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 are you hearing in terms of um, the MPPF and, and changes, and whether this takes a central role in it or not? Sure. Yeah. Uh, well, it is vital. I think uh, it is absolutely vital that uh, there are changes made to the MPPF. I would I would agree that um, it is a barrier in many cases to uh, the transition to net zero. Look, I mean, if you can, if you can imagine, um, you know, Turley and, and, and where we do and where we sit, you know, we, we, we're fantastically well placed to see, obviously, <laughs> the impact uh, of the planning system. And the, of course, the beneficial impacts that a sound planning system can have. Uh, you know, you, you, you want to deliver more housing to address the housing crisis, you can amend the planning system to, to support that. And exactly that, you know, you want to drive economic growth, planning system can drive that. And the same thing with net zero. I am a, I mean, if you pick up some of the things from the Skidmore review, um, the, you know, the net zero test, this is a bit of a, a bugbear of, of mine. Um, the net zero test, I think 
the NPPF should have a net zero test in it. And, and by the way, the current consultation that's out there on the changes to the NPPF, um, I don't know if anybody's looked through in detail, but uh, I can't find a single reference to net zero in the proposed changes, not one, um, which kind of says something in itself. Um, but um, and, and this net zero test, I mean, the Climate Change Committee first called for a net zero test, I think, in, in the summer of 2021. And, you know, you, you could argue that if you're a if you're a, a large investor in the UK and believe you me, I've been in meetings with said investors who are looking to locate anything from a gigafactory through to, you know, an advanced um, manufacturing plant. And the question is, you know, where is the planning policy that supports my innovative net zero building? Um, because it needs to go in, in the scale of land. We can't wait for local authority plan reviews. You know, we need some kind of policy support to, to justify this, you know, hundreds of millions of pounds of investment. And it's not there. And, and I, and I, in separate meetings with uh, the department, have, have called for a, a net zero test for some time. And, and sadly, it's, it's still not here. Now, I, I hope, I, I do hope that um, this report, the Net Zero Department under Mr. Shapps, will will take this on board and, and will push uh, for, for some form of amendment because it, it can't come soon enough, quite frankly. You know, and just, just on, the, on the bit about local authorities as well, and I think what's happened is you have this gap. You have this gap at a national level, this lack of clarity uh, drive and ambition and that's what's driving the local authorities to do it themselves and say right okay we will declare climate emergency and actually at the moment I think we again we monitor this we see policies from local authorities across the UK that's what my team does we review them so absolutely we've seen you know 75% of local authorities now declared climate emergencies we're seeing all of their policies now starting to come through Passive house, energy use intensity targets, net zero operation on site. There's a whole variety in the range. Now that in itself creates challenges, but it just shows that, you know, with the commitment to address it, at least they have got the ambition to try and to try and, you know, positively address that. But for developers like Harworth and Pete and many others, that does create a challenge between differenting different different standards and approaches applied across your kind of development portfolio so i think <laughs> i really really hope that um mr shabs has i'm sure read the read the review and uh will be liaising with uh, the department uh to uh to get some changes through to the mppf to drive forward net zero because it it, it has to be done yeah i have to agree i mean clearly there's, there's less than two weeks to go for people to put their representations in uh, across the uk into the mppf and clearly uh whilst not just looking at net zero i agree colin that the, the lack of reference is frankly maddening um given the importance of the issue and our lack of progress against it but then if we if we uh, turn the coin over have you seen anything at local level where you say do you know what the supplementary planning guidance that's coming from local authorities on this issue is particularly good. I mean, are there any local authorities that you would point towards that you feel are leading the charge on this? Open question for you both. Um, oh, well, uh, there's, there's there's a lot. I mean, look, you, you mentioned just picking, I think, uh, Harworth's geography. I, I happen to, I think, involved in a Harworth scheme up, up in that area of the woods. But Manchester, I mean, take Greater Manchester Spatial Framework is driving for net zero. 
is pushing forward its net zero plans and policies, wants to introduce um, uh, carbon offsetting. Again, there's some challenges over that and, 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 and the cost of it, but that would be one. You mentioned Leeds. Or, in fact, I would see all of the core cities. Take London, GLA, it's had a, a net zero policy of sorts in place since about 2016. Um, you know, some of the, the the local authorities around uh, South Oxfordshire are pulling together, uh, you know, some pretty ambitious um, standards. Um, but 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 the challenge throughout all of that is 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 that um, again, the local authorities, most of them are under resourced anyway, and what they really lack is technical kind of sustainability assistance to help them with the drafting of the policies and understanding the implications. And that's where, sadly, I think some of them will 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 will, will fall down. But um, you know, th th there is ambition there. It it is it is good to see that ambition. But I think at the moment it's being created. It is risks of creating more challenges in certain areas, not least of which I mean, one I mentioned. It was mentioned by Pete earlier on. But carbon offsetting. I mean, again, the amount of carbon offsetting policies we are seeing coming through at a local level, which again great ambition they want to raise funds to invest in carbon offsetting projects um and it and it's 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 really good to see that but but i think that that does give me some concerns that they there's a lack of expertise in in those areas to to, to administer them and deliver them successfully but again we could have a, we could have a whole podcast on that topic alone it's really uh, carbon offsetting. <laughs> The, uh, the resource the resource employees absolutely right um, and where you see the more comprehensive documents coming out Colin, you, you couldn't be have hit the nail on the head more it's where people have the resources have the capabilities the bigger cities and bigger conurbations where people are being commissioned to look at these things I think where we're seeing the greatest level of inconsistency and struggle if I'm being brutally honest is in the smaller authorities and I think I don't know if I'm allowed to mention leveling up these days but um I think there's a real danger there that some of the, the smaller authorities, particularly in the, in the north and the Midlands, get left behind with this. And that lack of expertise, I think, is a real gap. Because as a, a developer, um, without consistency across authorities, and look, we have to deal with inconsistencies across planning authorities as a matter of course. But on this particular issue, there's a, a singular goal, isn't there? There's to be net zero carbon as a country by 2050. Um, and I think without that consistency across authorities, I struggle to see how the government can commit to being net zero by 2050. And therefore, I struggle to see how developers like Harworth can respond to that in a consistent manner. Um, we've made our own commitments to be net zero carbon by 2040, 10 years ahead of the government agenda. Um, so we are wholly committed and our ambition is there. But actually, what we need is a level of consistency from government to support the planning authorities. Um, I think that's one of the key elements for us all, really, isn't it? <clears throat> no, absolutely right. I mean, they, I, I get a sense, gents, that clearly I think you've got a planning system at the moment, which, which frankly, is not working as well as it previously has. And I think the focus has been on local plans actually being produced because clearly you've got a number that haven't been in place for a number of years. I mean, I mean Simon Ricketts is actually in the audience and, and Sam will know that, you know, take an area like St Albans. Uh, St Albans' his last local plan was adopted in 1994. So you've got fundamental challenges in some areas in terms of where five-year supplies of, of land are going to come from. But I completely agree. And it, it's a, a beautiful segue to my next question. That is a clear area of skill development and, frankly, uh, finance being put towards 
uh, a key issue that that capability within the public sector to support new policy to come forward so coming on to that because you know one of the key things within the, the skidmore review um and it was particularly good at this was actually about highlighting the need for the UK skills system to adapt across all areas. In effect, you know, a, a future labour force being able to meet and, and, frankly, undertake the jobs of the future in both developing industries and, frankly, a number of industries across net zero that haven't even been invented yet. And so in terms of that good growth agenda, which industries today do you think are in most desperate need of, of new skilled talent to come into it? Um, difficult question, um, Colin. I'm going to come to you first, though. I mean, again, ba based upon what you've seen with some of your clients, which which sectors are in, are in most need? Yeah, good, good, good question, and and it is vital. And again, I I, I agree with with the Skidmore review for highlighting this. We've got a huge green skills gap we need to meet. But yeah, look, what one that kind of springs out to me based on conversations with clients, both in the domestic and non-domestic sector. We've mentioned them already, heat pumps. Um, and, you know, the, the, just kind of working out the mass, the quantum of heat pumps, you know, every building from 2025, every new building, residential building from 2025, will need a heat pump and not gas. So, you know, how many buildings are we going to need? Every single, theoretically, every single building in the UK is going to have to be retrofitted at some point for a heat pump instead of gas. I mean, there will be a, an exceptional few probably, but but that's millions. That's millions and millions of heat pumps needing tens of thousands of engineers to install it. So the construction industry, the house building industry, the development industry per se, I think, will you know will, will need um, a big, strong, steady supply of people who have the ability to retrofit the kit and to do, well, it's not just heat pumps as well, PVs, energy efficiency measures, insulation. There's a, there's a massive demand there. And I, 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 I again, I, I don't, I put my hand up, I don't know too much about what is the current supply, but every time I speak to house building clients or development clients, you know, it's, it's kind of a similar theme. We're, we're investing in our workforce. We're trying to train as quickly as we can but the demand is 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 huge, and 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 we worry about it, it being in place for twenty twenty five and beyond. No, absolutely right, and clearly, you know that the, what I would describe as an efficiency theme, which is right. How do we, you know, subsequently improve improve the efficiency of, of residential and commercial buildings? Clearly, there will be a number of subsectors within that. But another another area that that I've come across is, is frankly around the electrical engineering and one of the things is that clearly you've mm. had the rise of battery storage and others and you were talking yeah. about grid export before I mean the, the number of people we will need uh, within grid related industries and off grid related industries is going to be absolutely enormous Pete that's something that you've regularly raised with me in private um, would you agree with that assessment and where else would you go beyond some of the areas that, that Colin's described within his answer no, it's, um, but I think there's a there's a bit of a recurring theme for me in terms of green skills, particularly in terms of development and property. Um, and I think there's a general need for us to work out how to convert theory into practice. And you can apply that to the electric grids, you can apply that to buildings, you can apply it to whatever you really want. But I think at the moment, in terms of net zero carbon and sustainability generally, there's still a gap between the theory and what needs to happen in practice. 
So I think for me, people like civil engineers, I would say that, wouldn't I? Um, property professionals and the like need to allow themselves and be given the opportunity to get out of their silos to be able to start thinking more broadly about how things tie together um, and avoid that sort of situation that we've probably all have sort of had in our careers where the theory and the practice don't join up. Um, and I think a cross-fertilisation of ideas is crucial. So you speak about battery storage and electricity grids. That's all well and good, but actually if you can't provide the rest of the infrastructure, if you can't get the planning in line, if you can't get the finances in line, if you can't get the relationship to uh, the, the nature, the biodiversity on the site in line, then none of it actually works. So I think for me, um, turning the silos on their sides and getting people to think across their disciplines and to understand in a bit more detail, that's where the real skills deficiency lies. It's taking all the theory we're now talking about and putting it into practice. Um, as an engineer, I would say that, wouldn't I? But uh, I think it's true. Well, I mean, Pete, I think that's a really good, really good point. If I can just come in there again, because, you know, we just, I know we've moved on from the NPPF, but, but I think, you know, um, throughout this, this journey to net zero, you, you know, we're going to need a skill set, which might be there now in on the periphery, but it's going to have to become far more embedded in the construction and in fact, the built environment. We need a skill set there to what to, cal as you said, to calculate, to work out the theory and to translate it to practice. And it's, it is going to have to be lots and lots of calculations about where is the best to invest in buildings and in infrastructure to maximize our net zero and carbon returns. You know, where's, where are we going to get most bang for the book? Is it worthwhile putting housing there in that location or an employment park in that location? Is that going to lead to more carbon savings or is it worth investing in this building, etc., etc.? There's never a, a bottomless pit of money. So that process of working out exactly where, when, how to invest to create, you know, a net zero return is, is absolutely fundamental. And part of one of the questions from the NPPF consultation was, was asking about whether or not the government should introduce this this quote. I think the phrase was carbon impact assessment, which I have heard mentioned before from, from officials when I've had conversations with, with them around, okay, so, you know, that carbon impact assessment could now be, you know, could, could it have a role in deciding where the best location is for housing or employment, where, you know, whether or not building a road there will genuinely result in significant carbon savings? Now, that's really interesting. And at face value, you would think that's a very sensible thing to do um, for spatial planning or for development. But then there's going to have to be a whole skill set developed around standardizing methodology, people to understand that, et cetera, et cetera, and apply that. And, you know, that that in itself is an entirely interesting, um, but I would think very important skill set you know, to do exactly that, translate the theory into actual practice, where where best, you know, how do we implement net zero on the ground? I, I completely agree. I mean, you could also almost say statisticians will inherit the earth, Colin. So I think the data <laughs> creation, oh. analysis and evaluation, and clearly those who come forward with any kind of carbon data agency um, idea um, will stand to make huge gains. Similarly, Again, coming back to what we discussed earlier with the MPPS, part of me thinks that the need for, you know, a short term, I'm talking immediate 
need for further public sector in uh, public sector investment program to overcome 13 years of austerity and the brain drain that's occurred in the real estate industry and particularly thinking local authority planners and surveyors and asset managers ultimately needs to be reversed otherwise one of the key actors within any of this which are uh, local authorities and regional bodies will not be able to act so that would probably be the, the other part of the, the skills industry I'd want to focus on. But I mean, I think the future of skills, I think it probably deserves a podcast all of its own. So it pro- another one for, for another day. Uh, because we've come, on to our last, we've come on to our last question, gents, you'll be delighted to know. And it's sadly back to politics. I mean, one of the things in all this, and, um, and we can't avoid it, is that a lot of the report, the focus is on government action. While it talks about society and the, the role of individuals and business, a lot of it comes down to government mandates. And clearly what you have at the moment, you've already seen uh, the starting pistol being fired and both of the major parties in the UK working towards a likely election at the end of 2024. So with that in mind, can you really see any government mandated progress being made? I mean, clearly, you know, you've got the net zero department haven't been created, but... Could we really see that much being done over the next 18 months? Colin, I'll start with you. I get handed that uh, that tricky <laughs> question first, Ian. Thanks very much for that. Yeah, it's, it's called, it's called possible 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 possible. In, uh, in this game. That's, yeah. that's, that's exactly what I was uh, referring to, yeah. Um, right. It. I really, really hope so. But there's a couple of things that do just nag at me and, 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 and worry. The first is... The Conservative, this 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 current government, we know it's divided. It's divided over a number of things, and we know that you know um, there is a group within the, the Conservative Party called the, I believe, the Net Zero Scrutiny Group um, that was in led similar membership to those that were part of the ERG, and um, you know some of their statements of late, I, I I don't necessarily agree with, um, and I won't I won't quote anything, but I I I. I I, I am worried that they will attempt to block some of or uh, frustrate this this process. But I also hope that they are a minority. I also hope that the government clearly recognises that the, that that an output of doing all this is is economic growth, is a more sustainable, a more resilient economy. Um, I mean, you know. T- doing some maths earlier on we've spent i think the government's recent energy in, intervention measures the energy price cap and the uh, support scheme is projected to spend about 40 billion pounds uh, in these past six months 22 to 23 um that's a, that's a huge amount of money and all of that is spent because i mean quite rightly helping those that need it the most of course but but you know that if if we had only four or five years ago, spent that money on retrofit, energy efficiency, more renewable technology, perhaps the bill now would only be 10 billion. And I just I just think that surely the Conservatives will recognise, this government will recognise there's a lot of stuff in there that makes really, really good economic sense. And you almost feel like, you know, the most sustainable and resilient economies of the future are going to be the ones that crack this and get a clean, secure energy supply and lead the race to net zero. I mean, we talked heat pumps. How many heat pumps is the world going to need? There's a recommendation there about, I think, government supporting, you know, two major heat pump manufacturing 
uh, companies. I mean, absolutely. Use the freedoms we've got through Brexit and support that technology and, and, and make us the world leader in, in heat pump export. Um, so I, I hope, I really hope that the, 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 the government see this, see the opportunity and rush to embrace it. And that's me as a glass half full man. Yeah, I thought it was an extremely good glass half full answer. I mean, the uh, <laughs> coming back to coming back to what was within our report. I mean, uh, uh, I'd have to agree with you. The, the the government has its own target to to produce an updated net zero strategy by next month. So it's got a busy few weeks coming up with with MPPF and, and of course that. But that's, I think, in part because the Labour Party clearly has decided to, to jump on this as an agenda. As you say, they see um, green growth as good growth, which means that will be the driver of the future jobs in the UK. Um, so one of the things I referred to was um, the party conference speech that Keir Starmer made last year. You know, net zero was a central theme. Green growth was a central theme. And he talked about a mission-based approach to driving progress, and he has done consistently yeah. over, the, over the last few weeks. So clearly, um, the Labour Party putting a hell of a lot of effort in uh, of, you know, plan to over the next 18 months. Um, Peter, would you agree with, with Colin's glass-half-full assessment there, or would you take a, uh, a rather more subdued line? No, I think I would. I think, uh, like a good politician, I'm not quite going to answer the question you asked, so I'm going to deviate a little bit to where we get to. Um, look, for me, I mean, just putting my common sense hat on, there, there has to be a change and it has to start moving quite quickly. And the reasons for that, um, you know, philosophically, the mechanisms that we've built our society on rely on resources that are running out in many cases that we now recognise are damaging. So I think change is definitely going to happen. I think the interesting part is how controlled it is and how it progresses. Uh, and I think the politicians have a lot to think about from that perspective. But I'll kind of leave you with, with one sort of final thought on this one, that um, from a levelling up perspective, um, as a company, Harworth operates in the North and the Midlands and is involved in an awful lot of regeneration in areas that have suffered from industrial decline. The delivery of net zero is as important in those areas, if not more important than other areas, um, and one of the things from a political point of view that, that causes us to reflect on what's going to happen in the future is that the, the cost of delivering net zero carbon, the heat pumps, Colin quite rightly talks about the changes in building standards, how we, we develop our sites, is going to be the same no matter where you are in the UK. Um, the revenue that comes from the developments of housing and commercial and, and whatever it might be is going to be different because of the differences in whether you're developing in Doncaster or Cambridge. Um, and I think that's something that the politicians need to think long and hard about in that we cannot have a further widening of the gap between North and South being generic because the, the need to go towards net zero is the same in the North as it is in the South. Um, and what I don't want there to be is a, a move away from this agenda based on what people can afford. Yeah, absolutely right. I yeah. mean, again, I think that uh, one of the things that we're going to be picking up in future, Pete, is exactly how the government is getting on with devolution, because really ought to use financial measures within the devolution process with combined authorities as a way of attempting to address that gap. Uh, probably pretty simply, actually, 
to what New Labour attempted to institute uh, in 1997 and 1998 through things like floor targets and um, neighbourhood renewal funding and the like. So I expect to see further back to the future measures, uh, particularly if the Labour Party get into government post uh, autumn 2024. But um, that was a, 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 we rattled through that in 55 minutes and clearly, look, it's a 340 page report, decarbonisation, we could literally discuss for weeks uh, in covering all the areas, but uh, I thought it was a fantastic discussion, covered all the main topics that I'd like that I wanted us to cover. And uh, all I've got to say, thanks, is thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Peter Henry. Thank you to Colin Morrison. And our next uh, podcast uh, will be in around a month's time on a subject still to be confirmed, but uh, we'll be promoting that heavily on LinkedIn. So thank you very much, gents. Uh, appreciate your time and good evening. Thanks, Ian. Cheers. Thanks, Ian. Cheers. Yeah, all the best.